Welcome to Inside the Hive. This is your host, Nick Bilton. So three years ago this week, my wife and I rushed off to the emergency room because she was pregnant with our first child and was about to give birth. I remember everything about this evening, but there's a moment before the birth that actually stands out to me like crystal, crystal clear. What happened was our doctor, who had delivered 6,500 children before ours, not on that evening, of course, over the period of his incredible career, he was sitting there. We had been up all night. It was about 5 in the morning. It was still dark out. And I looked over at him as we were waiting for the epidural to wear off my wife. And I said, do you believe in God? Do you believe in some sort of higher power? And he said, you know, it's funny that you ask that. I don't. But when you see what you're about to see happen, the birth of your first child, it's hard not to. So I tell this story because the person who is coming on my show today, Sean Carroll, does not believe in God or any larger purpose. And Sean actually has a lot of merit in the arguments he makes. He's definitely one of the smartest people we've had on this podcast to date. He's a cosmologist, a physics professor. He specializes in dark energy and general relativity, teaches at Caltech. He's written several books, including The Big Picture on the Origins of Life, Meaning, and the Universe Itself. So he's going to join me today to talk about all of those things and what the meaning of life is, if there is no meaning at all. He's going to explain how there is probably, very likely, not intelligent life anywhere else in the universe, because mathematically speaking, it is really, really difficult to live where we do and the way we do. Uh, He's going to talk about how one day he believes, and physics actually proves this is true, that people will be able to live maybe not forever, but for a thousand years, and he'll explain why. Uh, He's going to explain why quantum mechanics is still one of the most elusive things going on in physics today, and he's going to talk about how we actually don't live in a universe, we live in a multiverse. So I'm really, really excited to welcome Sean to the show and to talk about that very difficult thing that we all worry about every single day. Is there a reason that we are here? Thank you for joining us today. I have more questions than we have time, which is probably pretty relevant for the universe, right? I can talk very fast. It's okay. (laughs) People can speed it up on their podcasting application. Um, You know, so we actually met at a dinner and I had said to you, uh, uh, do you think that there is a god in the universe and you you actually said no no uh very bluntly there was no like eh, maybe there is um <laughs> and then you sent me a paper you wrote which is titled why is there something rather than nothing so can you kind of give me a, a little bit of a you know layman's version of of your thinking here i think you're giving people the impression they should not meet me at parties or dinners because <laughs> i start sending them papers the next day but yeah i've been uh, a professional physicist for a long time but uh i've also been just interested more broadly in the fundamental workings of reality and it seems to me that whether or not god exists is one of the most important questions you need to come down on if you have a a view on the fundamental workings of reality. So I don't think that being wishy-washy about it is the right strategy. And I think that given what we know about the universe, if we try to be honest, if we don't succumb to wishful thinking or the tradition we grew up in or whatever, if you just step back and say, what would the world look like if God existed? 
And what does it actually look like? What, is it, what would it look like if God didn't exist? God not existing is a much, much better fit to how the world actually is than God existing. Well, well how, but how is that the case? I mean, I, when you look around you, there are so many magical things that happen. And the fact that we are having a conversation and the fact that, that we are conscious and, you know, we had Sam Harris on here a few months back and he had his theories on this too. Uh, and all of those things point to the fact that there has to be something or is there nothing? No. No, I mean, the fact that a balloon goes up in the air does not point to the fact that something is pulling it up in the air, right? There's a very down-to-earth mechanical explanation for this effect. And that's the history of the last 2,000 years, is that certainly the last 500 years, there's plenty of things out there that look mysterious, and there always turn out to be mundane mechanical explanations for them. So in the 19th century, people thought that life, the idea of being alive, was a involved a separate thing, right? A life force, an elan vital that could leave or enter a body. And now we know that it's actually a chemical reaction, a complicated set of processes that involve, you know, things working together in concert to give us what we call life. And when you die, those chemical processes stop. It's nothing that leaves your body or anything like that. And I think that consciousness is the same way, and I think the very existence of the universe itself, why the universe exists, is also the same way. At the end of the day, it will come down to understanding Understanding the laws of nature. So why do you think it is? Okay, so my dog Pixel is laying down behind me. Um, uh, does Pixel not have a conscience? Doesn't doesn't have consciousness? Does she not uh, uh, think about these things in the same way we do? And if that's the case, why is it that we're so special that we do? Yeah, there are probably degrees, of course. I think that uh, dogs and cats are more conscious than uh, daisies or flatworms. But yeah, they're less conscious than us, right? Um, I think that there probably was some kind of phase transition, as we say in physics, between human beings and the rest of the animal kingdom, the rest of living beings here on Earth. We sort of bootstrapped our way up to the point where we can think abstractly and symbolically in a way that other animals can't, other living beings can't. And as to why us, well, you know, the first set of animals to do this would be asking that question. So there's a selection effect. Of course, the ones that are sitting around and going, what makes us so special are the first ones that were special. <laughs> All right. So you have given talks and in, in, in your book, uh, let me just pull up, the, what's the title of it? The Big Picture? The Big Picture. The Big Picture. Um, you have talked about the fact that uh, there are a 100 billion planets in our galaxy, is that correct? Yeah, uh, we don't know the exact number, but, give but or that's take. Rough, yeah, give 100 or take billion, a... trillion, something like that. And that there are 100 billion galaxies. galaxies yeah. um, do you think that from a mathematical standpoint that there is surely other life out there? No. No? No. Wait, that wasn't the answer I thought you were going to say. <laughs> I know, so because if you look at, a lot so of people get it wrong. It's 100 billion planets and yeah. a billion, billion, 100 billion galaxies, and, and we're the only ones out there? Well, so we're trying to calculate a number. Yeah. How many intelligent species are there in the observable universe? And you say this number is obtained by taking two numbers and multiplying them. One number is how many planets there are in the observable universe, and the other is the average number of intelligent species per planet. And you're saying, look, the number of planets is really big, so therefore the left-hand side has to be really big. No, because the number of intelligent species per planet could be really tiny. It could be just the chances of getting an intelligent species arising on a planet is 10 to the minus 100, in which case we're very, very fortunate to be here at all. We just don't know. I'm not saying that we are the only ones. I'm saying we really don't know. 
And if we if we don't know, do you think there will be a point in time when we will know, or do you think that uh, as, as a human species, we're probably going to just end up ending ourselves before we have the ability to? I think it's very plausible that we will know. I mean, there's two obvious ways. One is we meet them, right? You know, we say hi, and then we know. That's for sure. There's the, the, what, in that instance, what's the great quote? It's from uh, from Hawking's where he said, if aliens visit us, the outcome would be uh, much as when Columbus landed in America, which didn't turn out well for the Native Americans. <laughs> that, that is an issue that we can worry about. Um, but the other thing is, you know, like, like I just said, the unknown quantity is what is the likelihood, the fraction, the probability that life arises, that intelligent life comes to be on a random planet. So that we can get our hands around much better than we have. What is the probability that life starts at all? What is the probability that it becomes multicellular? What is the probability that it becomes intelligent, that it doesn't kill itself? These are things that over the next hundreds and thousands of years in the future, we'll probably get a much better estimate of. So, okay, so in your theory, why do you think the universe exists? Is it just some freak chance that it happened? Is there some some theory, some mathematical equation that we haven't discovered yet? Like, what is the reason behind it? Yeah, there could be deeper reasons, but I think the most likely thing is that it's just a brute fact. It's just true. It just is. That, in other words, the question, why does the universe exist, is not the kind of question that has an answer. When we ask, why is something true? and we expect to get a reasonable answer, this is always within a context, within a larger frame of reference, right? If you come in at home one night and your front window is broken, you would say, why is the window broken? And someone will say, oh, the kids were playing baseball and a ball came in. So that's all within a context of you expect the window not to be broken. There are things called kids playing things called baseball. Balls can break windows. Like there's a whole bunch of extra superstructure that comes along with that. When we talk about the universe existing, none of that is there. <laughs> the universe in the sense of all of reality. Well, it's, it doesn't belong to some bigger context in which an explanatory framework can be provided. But isn't the fact that it that it doesn't exist, it shouldn't exist, isn't that part of that context that puts it into reality, or no? I don't think that we can say that it shouldn't exist. I'm not even sure that that really makes sense. Like, there's this idea that people have that the universe somehow requires effort <laughs> to exist, right? Like, it, some, it needs to be created or held up or sustained or something like that. The universe can just be, and every single thing we know about the universe is compatible with it just being, and that's it. Okay. That's a little sad. Well, it might not be right. I just think that's the most likely <clears throat> no, I, I, end of the day. I, I hear I you. I see no reason otherwise. So one of the things that you talk about a lot is entropy um, and that the universe is constantly expanding. Um, yeah. And can you, A, explain just the whole entropy thing? Mm -hmm. uh, and also, at one point you said that the universe was so small that it fit into the palm of your hand. That's right. Um, yes. If that was the case, what was outside of the palm of your hand outside of the universe? These are two very different questions. Yes. So which one you want first? <laughs> Whichever one you want. The uh, expanding universe question is easier, so okay, let's do let's that because we can close that. Um, so when we say the universe could fit in the palm of our hand, in fact, it's smaller than that. It could fit like on the tip of your finger. The entire uh, universe at one point. That's right. So if we take our universe as we observe it today. Those 100 billion... 100 billion galaxies, or maybe 2 trillion, something like that. Um, there's a limit to how far we can see, right? Because the universe is expanding... Galaxies that are far away from us are moving away faster than galaxies that are nearby. And so there's a point at which the galaxies, if you just naively did the math, they're moving away from us faster than the speed of light. 
which means really more technically the light from them will never get to us because space in between us and those galaxies is expanding too fast, okay? So there's a limit to what we can see. And when we say the universe used to be the size of a fingertip or whatever, what we mean is that part of the universe used to be that big. And that's pretty well established. That is coming directly from observations of what the universe is doing now, plus our theoretical understanding given to us by Einstein and other people who've been, you know, had their theories very carefully tested. Now what's beyond what we can see, we don't know. It could be that there's an infinitely large expanse of stuff out there. It could be that it's infinitely large and more or less the same as what we see, so just the same damn thing over and over again. It could also be infinitely large but very, very different from place to place. And then we would have something like a multiverse, right, where our universe as we see it, tens of billions of light years across, is more or less the same from place to place. Like the, the galaxies that we see very, very far away look the same as the galaxies we see nearby. But it might be that if you go a hundred billion, billion, billion light years away, the laws of physics are different. You know, particles and forces are very, very different. And, and the local conditions would be completely different from what we see around us. So that would be a multiverse. It could also be that the universe is just finite, that what we see is all there is, or only maybe a little bit more. So in a multiverse scenario, is it, is it that the it would be connected to this universe or these separate universes that kind of butt up against each you other? You can do it both ways, actually. This is so little we know about this, right? <laughs> We're really just speculating about what the possibilities are. We don't have a lot of right to say which one is right, which one's wrong. So there are theories where the different universes are truly disconnected from each other. In fact, you can imagine a, a situation where there's one universe and it sort of splits off. So there's a whole other baby universe that gets born and, and grows and, and goes its own way, completely disconnected from its mommy universe. But usually, in fact, when cosmologists talk about the multiverse, they have in mind a more mundane thing where everything is connected and there's bubbles within our universe where inside the bubble things are just very different. And you can imagine these bubbles bumping into each other and you can even imagine, crossing your fingers, that there are little signs, little remnants of other bubble universes having bumped into ours in the past that we will someday discover by doing observations of our universe. When you kind of think about all these things and black holes and so on and so forth, do you, does it, is it exciting that we, of what we get, what we will eventually learn, or is it kind of a little terrifying at the same time because it may present answers that we don't necessarily want? I don't think it's terrifying. It's exhilarating, exciting. You know, um, it's certainly possible we get answers we don't want. I mean, uh, to be brutally honest, you know, we turned on the Large Hadron Collider, the, this big particle accelerator in yep. Geneva at CERN, um, 2008 or something like that. It first turned on and sort of came to life really in 2009, 2010. 2012, we discovered the Higgs boson, which we all expected, but most of us expected a lot more than that. And we haven't had it. What was the thing that we expected more? Well, the thing is that the Higgs boson, it has a particular mass, right? We've measured its mass. It's Can like, you explain for the listeners that yeah. don't know what a Higgs boson is? I'm sure there aren't any such listeners, but just in case, <laughs> you know. Um, this, there's this thing that we have called the standard model of particle physics, this wonderful, intricate, complicated framework that accounts for all the particles and forces we've ever seen in any experiment ever. And there's, there was one missing piece, because if you took at face value the principles of symmetry and so forth that this uh, 
standard model was based on, it makes a very firm prediction that particles like electrons and quarks and so forth are all massless. They should move at the speed of light. That's not the real world. In the real world, they're massive and they don't move at the speed of light. They move more slowly than that. So this is a, a problem to which we had a ready answer. All the way back in the 1960s, a bunch of people, including Peter Higgs, but also others, proposed that empty space is suffused with this invisible energy field called the Higgs field now. And it's because electrons and quarks and so forth are moving through the Higgs field that they acquire mass. It's like you're walking through water rather than through air. You walk more slowly, right? Hmm. Or you're walking through molasses or something like that. So different particles interact and feel this Higgs field differently, which is why an electron has a much lower mass than a top quark or something like that. And the way that you can tell whether this theory is right or not is that there's a consequence of imagining an invisible energy field throughout the universe, which is if you poke it, if you prod this field by creating other particles, then the field starts vibrating. And when you look at those vibrations in this field, you see individual particles. So these are the Higgs bosons that are created by the vibrations in the Higgs field. And we finally did this back in 2012. So we proposed the idea in 1964. We finally did it in 2012. We discovered them at the Large Hadron Collider. But there's a mystery that comes along with this, which is for reasons of you know mathematics and physics and so forth, you could do a back of the envelope calculation. How heavy should the Higgs boson be? How massive should it be? And the answer is huge. The answer is way bigger than what it actually is. There's this weird fine tuning, this gigantic hierarchy between how big the Higgs boson mass is and how big that it should be. We don't know why. We cleverly have named this the hierarchy problem of particle physics. But essentially every proposed solution said that once we found the Higgs, we'd found a bunch of other particles of similar masses that would help explain why the mass of the Higgs boson was so light. We haven't found any of those particles yet. It's six years later, right? Uh, nothing. And are they still using the collider yep. to search still for that? turned on. It's still creeping up in energy, looking in more and more places, and uh, nothing yet. We, you know, This could change tomorrow. Who knows? It might just be that somehow these particles have been hiding from us, but so far haven't seen anything. That's so, not an answer we want. So one of the things that, uh, as a result of of these, you know, from Einstein's equals MC squared, there was a million things that now affect our daily lives that we now, uh, as a result of that equation being solved. What kind of things can can change in our daily life from discovering the Higgs boson or these other particles? Yeah, nothing. Nothing. No. We're <laughs> just, done with that. Sorry. Just with just our understanding of... Well, I'll tell you the reason why. It's because the things that we were discovering, the pieces of fundamental physics that we were putting together in the first half of the 20th century, were basically things that were already lying around, but we just didn't understand. Electrons, photons, quarks, and so forth. There they are, right? You know, on the table in front of us, there's all sorts of quarks, okay? For the second half of the 20th century, we've been finding new things, top quarks, Higgs bosons, muons, well, muons were earlier, but you know, other kinds of particles, but they're not there in the everyday stuff. They decay away, they have a lifetime. So a Higgs boson, you make it, and it decays away in one zeptosecond, which, which is, is a very short period of time. Got it. It's 10 to the minus 21 seconds, okay? So you're not going to make a Higgs boson iPhone. To make the Higgs boson, you need a $10 billion particle accelerator, and then it lasts for a zeptosecond. So technology 
And there's plenty of room for technology to improve by leaps and bounds in the future, but it's not going to be through discovering new pieces of fundamental physics. It's going to be through more clever applications of the fundamental physics we already know about. But hold on. We, so we don't understand uh, quantum mechanics. We have no idea how it works, correct? Yes and no. It's in between. We, we, we know we put something in a little box and something comes out, but we don't know what happens in the box. The, thing, uh, the way that I would say it is we understand exactly what quantum mechanics says will happen. We don't know exactly why. So isn't that a perfect example of things that we still have to discover and that there will be solutions and things in our life that could be affected and changed by that? Probably not, because we do understand exactly what quantum mechanics says will happen, right? So for <laughs> the purposes of building an apparatus, even a quantum computer is something that really relies intimately on the rules of quantum mechanics. For all of those purposes, we understand quantum mechanics fine. It's one of the best tested, best understood theories we have. We don't understand like what it means at a deep level, and uh, someone like me is very invested in trying to figure that out but not because of the hope of some new technological advancement. So I'm a little bit of a, a quantum mechanics uh, uh, groupie. Um, I read all this stuff about it. It's incredibly confusing, but I love reading about it. Um, <clears throat> correct me if I'm wrong here. So we understand uh, how traditional physics work, right? And we, and we understand that quantum mechanics works, but the two things do not match. They don't meet up, right? Mm -hmm. um, if that were to happen, what could the implications of that be? Well, yeah, so I think that this is a crucially important question. And the way that I like to say it is, 500 years from now, when historians of science write about the 20th century, they will be incredibly impressed with the fact that physicists were able to figure out quantum mechanics. It's just so very, very different than anything that had come before. And on a relatively short period of time, we went from having no glimmer about quantum mechanics to accepting that it was right. But they will also think that it's extraordinarily embarrassing that once we got quantum mechanics, <laughs> we didn't try to understand it better, right? We didn't try to understand what the essence of it really, really said. So this is the next book that I'm writing called Something Deeply Hidden, a uh, quote from Einstein, because he was always on the side of, no, we need to understand how things really work. But he lost that debate in the 1920s and 30s. That was when he was talking mechanics. about the, the God doesn't throw dice. and Yeah, he was talking about stuff like that. But all of that was an expression of the fact that he said, look, it's less important how things work than that we try to understand how things work. Like, it could be different things that are actually going on. I just want to know what they are. And the prevailing wisdom of Niels Bohr and Werner Heisenberg and others, the giants of quantum mechanics, was, look, we know how it works. Don't ask me too many questions about what's really going on underneath. Didn't they want to know how it works, or...? It's hard it to seems tell. It's like a, it's the, it seems antithetical to the, the scientist mentality to be like, eh, this works. You know, you're hearing it from me, and I have a point of view on this, so you should hear from someone else to get a more a, a different perspective. But I think, yes, I think it is antithetical to the scientific spirit. I think that a lot of scientists today have been so influenced by this idea that if you ask them what is the point of doing science, they will say to make experimentally testable predictions. And you say, but no, no, isn't it to understand the world? Oh, no, no, understanding the world isn't important anymore. There's this, a memo was written by the editor of the World's Leading Physics Journal back in the 1950s that said, if anyone submits a paper trying to understand the foundations of quantum mechanics, don't even consider it. We won't publish that. Hmm. Why? Just because it was just not, not important. productive. We have better things to do. We have, you know, particles okay, so, to look at. So going back to that question of, of 
I mean, it's hard to say what would happen. I guess there's two questions to it. One is, do you think that quantum mechanics and our traditional physics that we understand will ever find a way to, because they are, they're like Chinese and, and math. They're just completely two separate things, right? Yeah. I mean, I think it's not so much about reconciling ordinary physics with quantum mechanics, although that's important. It's more just understanding what quantum mechanics is. What do you mean when you say quantum mechanics? What's, what, what are the gears that are spinning underneath the surface that explain why we see what we see? And, and, and you think it's going to take how long before we get there? I think that there's no problem with figuring it out. I think that actually uh, the, this, my, so, my favorite view of it, the many worlds version of quantum mechanics. I was about mechanics, to ask about many worlds. I think it's basically right. I think there's a lot of work to be done. So let's explain how many works. worlds to people. So many worlds, uh, I'll, shall I give it a shot here? Go ahead. So Not many worlds is that, that there are, uh, there are literally many different worlds, uh, many different scenarios for everything that happens. It's almost infinite, the number of different things simultaneously happening. So there's one world where I reach out and shake your hand. There's another world where you reach out and shake mine. There's another world where my fingers fall off in the process. Is, is that correct? This is on the right track. There are okay. more equations than what you <laughs> what you said, but there's also more motivation for it. Okay. So it's not just that anything happens. It's that more than one thing happens, okay? So in particular, here's why you might believe that. When you have in, in anyone's version of quantum mechanics, whether it's many worlds or not, when you want to discuss, let's say, an electron, and it, it, electrons have this feature that they spin. They can either spin clockwise or counterclockwise. That's it. Only two choices, quantized, okay? When you measure it, you get one answer or the other. You never get in between. It's spinning clockwise or counterclockwise. But quantum mechanics says when you're not measuring it, that electron can be in a superposition of spinning both clockwise and counterclockwise. This is what makes quantum mechanics really mysterious and hard to understand. This is Schrodinger's cat, right? It's exactly Schrodinger's cat. I mean, Schrodinger's cat is sort of the trying to make it as absurd as possible. Possible, yeah. Cat in a superposition of being alive and dead. But and Schrodinger was using that as a, as, a, as a way of saying, surely you don't believe that mm-hmm. cats can be in a superposition. And, and quantum mechanics says, yes, yes, they can. So the thing that makes it weird is that quantum mechanics seems to be saying that there's one way of describing the world when we're not looking at it and a different way when we are. Okay. And that's bothersome. And what is the what is that what are the implications of that? What does that mean? Well, good. So if you follow it, so you you have this electron superposition, spinning clockwise and counterclockwise, there's a probability of getting either answer. So implication number one is you can't predict definitely what will happen. You can only predict the probability. The more profound implication is what does it mean to look at something and only see one answer? So the traditional answer is there's a collapse, that the electron was in a superposition of both clockwise and counterclockwise, but when you saw it and you saw it, oh, it's spinning clockwise, the other possibility disappears instantly and and simultaneously everywhere throughout the universe. So what Hugh Everett said, he said he was a graduate student in the 1950s in Princeton, and he was the originator of the many worlds interpretation. He said, look, you should take seriously the fact that not only is the electron a quantum mechanical object, but you are a quantum mechanical object. That means that you can be in a superposition. And how about the following? Just take seriously what the equations of quantum mechanics say. And what they say is when you look at the electron, it's not that the counterclockwise spin disappears. It's that there, it starts, you haven't looked at the electron yet, and the electron is in a superposition. And then by the act of looking at it, the universe becomes the following thing. 
Part of it is the electron was spinning clockwise and you saw it spinning clockwise in a superposition with the electron was spinning counterclockwise and you saw it spinning counterclockwise. And all Everett says is stop there. Don't get rid of anything. Both of those are real. What happened is that when you looked at the electron, the wave function of the universe, the quantum mechanical way we have of describing all of eternity and all of reality, split from one possibility with a superposition to two different worlds where two copies of you saw two different things. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, <laughs> that's a lot. Um, <laughs> And so, okay, so when you there, talk... There is an iPhone app that will do it for you. Yes. Yeah, you a, want I'm different sh- things to happen. You know. uh, so when you, okay, but when you talk about this, I, I always go back to this quote. I'm going to go back to the beginning uh, of our conversation. And uh, there was a quote, I don't remember it exactly, but Einstein once said that, that when you look at the universe and the mathematical equations that it, it make it up, that it is impossible for there not to be some larger purpose, that there is some, some larger beauty to what this is. When you talk about that we're in this quantum state and there's doesn't that make you think like "Eh, maybe there is something to it no not at all in fact even einstein didn't think that einstein would sometimes speak in flowery language but he was always extraordinarily mechanistic and natural so he would talk about the universe in sort of spinozist terms spinoza being a philosopher who attributed all of reality he called that god okay so spinoza said he believed in god and if you said well what does God do to answer prayers? And he's like, no, 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 that's not what God is. God's just the universe and reality. And that was more or less Einstein's conception. So he was very much of the belief that the universe was fundamentally beautiful and profound and deep, but not that it was supernatural in any way, not that there was any external purpose for it. Do you, when, is, have there been a, a scientists, astrophysicists, um, theorists that, do most of them not believe that there is a reason for why we're here? Or do- I think it depends on how you slice it. But yeah, most people who are working in these kinds of questions from the science side, cosmology and astrophysics and physics, they think it's a bunch of equations to tell you what happens. That's it. That's but, the is, whole story. but again, it's, isn't it antithetical to the fact that, I mean, is there a goal that we can eventually dis- figure out? Is, is there a, re- is there a, a, a world a hundred million years from now where someone finally does the last equation and says, oh, it turns out that, that uh, Sean Carroll was right. Yeah, that's R- true. I mean, it's, you know, there's a, when you ask questions beginning with, isn't it possible that? The answer is always <laughs> yes, okay? So it's, it's less interesting to think about what's possible and more to think about, you know, what seems to be the most reasonable probability, most reasonable likelihood. So it is absolutely possible that all the progress of, natural science over the last 500 years, which has worked to strip away the usefulness of God and spirits and higher purposes from the world, could be undone by future discoveries. That's 100% possible. But I would say the more likely future is that we just figure things out. We learn what the equations are, what the formal structure is that describe the laws of nature. They're self-contained, and we have a physical system, the world, reality, and we're a tiny part of it, and it is what it is at the end of the day. Do you think as we, you know, when you start to talk about understanding quantum mechanics more and we start to get into quantum computing, which is just an astronomical kind of computing system, do you think that we will get to a point where we will start to, I guess there's two questions here. One is uh, interstellar travel uh, to other planets beyond just Mars. I'm talking about mm-hmm. like other other planets because in the galaxy, other solar systems. Um, and 
Uh, and do you think that we humans, let's pretend that we are the only ones that are intelligent in this universe, do you think that we will eventually inhabit the universe in other right. ways? So don't don't forget, we need to get back to entropy at some point. Yes, yeah, so right, I, I that, keep but, thinking about entropy, but okay. unless you want to get there now. No, no, can... no, because these are good questions too. Um, so yeah, I think that exploring interstellar space, there's no obstacle to that in principle. So we tend to think that it's very hard to get from one solar system to another because other stars are very far away, right? The nearest other star besides the sun is something like four light years away. Even if we moved close to the speed of light, it takes us at least four years. And most stars would take thousands or, or millions of years to get to. So that sounds daunting to us. And therefore, if we're science fiction writers, the very first thing we do is to invent a way to go faster than the speed of light, right? Warp like a wormhole. Or whatever, wormholes, yes, exactly. I don't <clears> think that that's going to happen. I, don't, I think that the speed of light is here to stay. We're not going to build warp drives, wormholes, or anything like that. What I think we'll do is live forever. It's much easier to extend a human lifespan than it is to go make a spaceship that goes faster than the speed of light. So you think that, you know... 500 years ago, people died in their 30s, you know, 500 years before that, sometimes in their 20s. Now people are living, you know, it's not it's not abnormal for you to live to 100, 110, 120. You think that uh, X years from now that, that we will live 1,000 years or? Yeah, I think it's not just sort of a gentle linear progression. I think that we will figure out how to reverse age people, you know, to take people who are 50 years old, give them a medical procedure, and they come out biologically 20 years old. And I don't think this is going to happen in the next 10 years. This is not something I'm investing stock in, but it doesn't <laughs> violate the laws of physics like going faster than the speed of light would. How does it not violate the laws of physics to, to take – isn't – okay, so let's get to the entropy thing because – There you go. <laughs> this is the perfect segue to that. Right. So the entropy thing is the following. Uh, we're all familiar with the idea of entropy, even if not the word. When you take systems that are organized – and do things with them or just let them do things to themselves, they tend towards more disorderly configurations. If you take a deck of cards that is in order and you shuffle it, it's not going to order itself spontaneously. If you take cream and coffee and mix them together, they're going to get all mixed up. They won't unmix. So the entropy is the scientific way of characterizing how messy, how disorderly things are. And in a closed, isolated system, Entropy only ever increases. Things only go from order to disorder and never the other way around. But it's crucial there that we're talking about closed, isolated systems. You are, after all, allowed to clean your room. <laughs> you're allowed to take a deck of cards and put them in order again, right? And the point is that you're not letting the system do its own thing. You're coming out in an, as an external agent and influencing it. So the increase of entropy is responsible for what we call the arrow of time all the different ways in which the past and future are different from each other. So the fact that you remember the past but not the future is ultimately because entropy was lower in the past. And certainly aging is among these differences. Although, I'm sorry, so you just said remember the past and not the future. So yes. the future has already happened and or it's happening at the same time as the past? or Well, you can't use the words already or at the same time. But to <laughs> uh, a physicist, the future, the past, and the now are equally real. It's not that the universe is the universe right now and the past is this memory and the future is something that is up for grabs. There's the whole four-dimensional reality that is equally real. And we're just sort of sampling different parts of it as we go through our lives. Can you explain that a little further? Sure. The, um, it's, a, it's a philosophical point that uh, came along and sort of accompanied a set of scientific discoveries, right? So if you think about the world, 
it's natural to think of space, where everything is located, and then the stuff that is in space, right? Planets and stars. And I don't mean outer space, but, you know, desks and chairs and, and floors and things like that, right? So you can think of the universe as a bunch of stuff distributed through this three-dimensional space. But of course, if you want to meet somebody for coffee, you have to tell them not only where you're going to meet them, but also when you're going to meet them. This universe, this three-dimensional space full of stuff, happens over and over again, and that's the passage of time. And so, in some sense, even if you were Aristotle, you could have thought of the world as four-dimensional, in the sense that to locate someone to meet them, you need to give them four pieces of information, where you are in space, which is three numbers, and when you want to meet them. But time and space were so different from each other that no one thought to do that. They just seemed completely different concepts. What happens when Isaac Newton and Galileo and people like that come along is that instead of thinking of the world as just right now, but then flowing into the future, the equations that they developed to understand how the world works, it's a feature of those equations that they don't say that there's anything special about the now. They treat all moments of time exactly equally. And this was sort of codified by this guy, Pierre-Simon Laplace, one of my favorite uh, underappreciated physicists and mathematicians. He said, in different words, he said, information is conserved. If you knew everything there was to know about the universe right now, then you could predict with perfect fidelity what the future would be and what the past was. And so in some sense, they're equally real because they're all determined by everything else. And quantum mechanics messes that up a little bit, but okay, that's a whole different thing. And then Einstein comes along and says, you know, even the division of space and time into what is space and what is time is not fixed by nature. It's different for different observers. It's relative. That's where the word relativity comes from. Different people divide four-dimensional space-time up differently into space and time. So the lesson, it's not 100% um, determined, but the lesson is rather than being what is called a presentist, someone who believes the universe is the now and it changes with time, you should be an eternalist, someone who believes that all moments of time are equally real. There's nothing special about now, except now is where the now version of me is currently located. So in, in that situation, to go back to the we could live forever, that there would be a moment that you would take a person and then put them back in time? No, or? not necessarily. It's more just like uh, you know, sending your car in for a tune-up. So entropy increases, and that is why we age. That's why we're all born mm -hmm. young. Entropy is increasing. That determines the difference between past and future. But we're not closed systems. We can go to the doctor. The doctor can fix things within us, right? What we're getting, we're, what we're pretty good at now is fixing things on the macroscopic level. Like if you, you know, uh, get a scratch, we can heal it, things like that. What we're getting better at is fixing things at the microscopic level, taking individual cells and repairing them back to what they were when they were very, very young. What we're not any good at at all is putting those things back together, right? So going into a person who has many, many cells in them and fixing all the cells at once and making them young again, we're nowhere close to that. But it's possible, it's plausible, we can imagine doing it, and where you know, medical technology is advancing. So it's just much easier to imagine that we can get a tune-up and become biologically young again, still with all of the memories and impressions we had from our past, uh, and live for an arbitrary number of years. And therefore, space travel is not such a big problem. 
So therefore, traveling a thousand years is yes. like, eh, all right, cool. Right, just, you know, Let's... bring your iPad and uh, have some fun, <laughs> right? Play so, Angry Birds the whole time. So you mentioned earlier that, you know, there's a world in which we could, even if we travel the speed of light, isn't the theory that if you travel the speed of light that you go before it and therefore you're going back in time? Well, one of the issues with the possibility of going back uh, faster than the speed of light is because Einstein said that how we divide up space and time depends on who's doing the observing— if you could go faster than the speed of light, then there is a person from whose point of view you're going backward in time, like it or not. So it seems, again, we don't know what the rules are because, in fact, you can't go faster than the speed of light. But if you could, it seems that by going really fast in one direction and really fast backward, you could come back before you left. So that's one of the reasons why we think you can't go faster than the speed of light because that would be bad to be able to beat yourself in the past. It would, and, and we've never seen anyone come back, so therefore we theorize that they have not gone forward? To be strictly correct, uh, two things. Number one, going into the future is easy. We do it all the time, time traveling to the future. I did it yesterday. I moved 24 hours into the future, and here I am, right? You can even go into the future faster than normal. That's what Einstein said. If you zip out close to the speed of light in a rocket ship and then come back, you might staying here, have experienced a year gone by, and I only experienced a day, okay? So I flew a year into the future in, in one day of my time. What you can't do is go back. In principle, you could imagine that it's possible to build a time machine, but one that would only ever take you back to the moment that you first built the time machine, right? So if, if I somehow, here in this room, got a bunch of equipment and build a time machine so that people from the future could come back and visit us now, that would not imply that I could go back and visit the 19th century. So there's not actually experimental demonstrations that time travel is impossible. Got it. So until the time machine exists, we can no longer go backwards and forwards. In principle, that's a, that's a logical possibility. Why? why so I, but if that's the case, so you're saying because you can only travel forward and backwards at that speed, and therefore the only place you can go to is there. Yeah, in some sense, it's, it's an interesting thing because it gets at this fact that all moments of the universe have an equal amount of reality, right? If you think of things conventionally... Um, it's easy to think that we move into the future because that's the only way to go, right? And so you are just convinced that, for in instance, you can make choices that affect your future life. You cannot make a choice that would affect your past life. Your past life is already in the books, right? But in this eternalist point of view, everything is already in the books, including the future. We just don't know it. Okay, so you could imagine going into the past, but you can't imagine changing it. It's already there. So anything that you could do, if you could go into the past, would be consistent with what we already know happened in the past. So in some sense, it's you're mixing up past time travel with predestination. There are things you can't do. You can't kill Hitler as a boy because he didn't get killed as a boy. It's a shame. Uh <clears throat> Science can be a downer that way, yes. So when you look at some of the things that are the experiments that are going on right now, uh, what what are some things taking place and what are the potential repercussions, not repercussions necessarily, sometimes I guess repercussions, but the potential outcomes of, of these uh, these experiments, you know, beyond the, the, the Higgs boson and, and so on? What are some of the things that you're seeing happen in your world? Yeah, so I think that there's sort of two categories when you ask about future experimental results. One is in this realm where I work of 
fundamental physics, the fundamental laws of physics. And there, you know, we figured out enough that new surprising experimental results are thin on the ground. They're <laughs> rare. They come, like, you know, we, we found the Higgs boson, we found the gravitational waves recently. We're very much hoping to detect dark matter experimentally. That's sort of, there's this stuff called dark matter. We're 99.99% sure it's real. And it is what? We don't know. <laughs> Wait, so, so how, do you, how do you decide you're going to detect something you don't even know what it is? Right. You know, how do you decide the air exists even though you don't see it? Well, you can wave your hand and feel it, right? So dark matter has an effect on the motion of ordinary matter. Dark matter has a gravitational field. And is dark matter the thing that doesn't change size, shape, or anything like that? Is There's dark matter and dark energy. Got it. So back in the 1990s, we had this triumphant moment where we put together the pie chart of the universe. And for better or for worse, the pie chart of the universe is 70% of the energy of the universe is in something called dark energy. 25% is in something called dark matter. And leaving only 5% for of the universe for stuff that we know and love right for all the particles we've ever seen in an experiment all the stuff you and i are made out of the sun the moon and the stars that stuff is only five percent of the universe the dark matter is matter it's some kind of particle it settles into galaxies it has a gravitational field in some ways it's quite uh down to earth and and conventional but we don't see it we don't interact with it directly we've never made it an experiment We've just seen its of gravitational effects. Most of the matter in the galaxy that we live in is dark matter, not ordinary matter. The dark energy is something much more mysterious than that. It is something that, as far as we can tell, is inherent in the fabric of space-time itself. It's something that seems to have the same amount of energy at every location in space and every moment in time. It doesn't dilute away. Like, as the universe expands... The universe gets bigger, but the amount of stuff remains the same. So there's less stuff per cubic meter or whatever, but not with the dark energy. The dark energy is the same amount of energy per cubic meter, even though the number of cubic meters is expanding. And that's a bizarre property that is actually pushing the universe apart and making it accelerate. So we, we have a theory for what the dark matter is. It, it's a theory that we got from Einstein, the cosmological constant, he called it, the energy of empty space itself. What we don't know is why it has the particular value that it appears to have. What was it about Einstein? Was he a, a, was he at, at, at a moment in time where uh, he was standing on the shoulder of giants who had already uh, figured out the solutions to certain things and he was the one that pulled it all together? Was he just the true genius that we have heard that he is? Like, what was it about him? Because every time we talk about something, it always relates back to him. Yeah. Or was there one thing that he did that that uh, set off a whole new race for, for all of this? I think it's a combination of those things. I think that you could make a case that Einstein is underrated. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because, you know, he had this long celebrity period, right, where he, you know, the hair got long, he became rumpled, he was on the covers of all the magazines, and people thought that maybe he had become detached from the day-to-day, -day, you know, high-stakes physics discussions. But, you know, Einstein was just smarter than everybody else, and he was in the right place at the right time. In 1905... Uh, he invented special relativity, right? This idea that uh, you can't travel faster than the speed of light and time moves differently depending on how you're moving, things like that. It was one of only four papers. It was, one of, it was only one of four papers that he wrote that year. Uh, and it's not even the one he won the Nobel Prize for. <laughs> he also invented photons that year. He also measured the sizes of atoms that year. And, you know, E equals MC squared. He was just 
had an amazing ability to cut through what didn't matter and get at the heart of what did matter. And when it required, you know, learning some crazy new mathematics he wasn't acquainted with, he would learn it. He just, he didn't like hand it off to a graduate student. He figured it out. Um, so I think that it does, we do him a disservice because when the 20s and 30s come along and quantum mechanics is now ruling the day and Einstein is skeptical of how quantum mechanics was being discussed, I think that there's a certain strain in history that says that he had lost touch and he wasn't able to accept these dramatic conclusions. He understood quantum mechanics as well as anyone did, and he was just dissatisfied with it because he thought that his friends were giving up on understanding how nature really works. So they were providing a recipe, if you do this, this will happen, without asking why. And that made him very uh, unsatisfied, and I think that he was actually right to be unsatisfied about that. One of the things that he... Uh he was responsible for it was he helped with the creation of the atomic bomb uh and there's maybe this is just another fairy tale quote but there's the quote of uh, when he first saw what it was possible he th- he said oh my god what have i done uh and uh and then spent a lot of time trying to kind of put the genie back in the bottle when you think about some of the experiments going on today and you know even the higgs boson things like that are there potential devastating technologies that or you know uh physics that you were people are working on that could have really terrible effects on on humanity well yeah so i guess um a couple minutes ago i I started saying there's sort of two kinds of experiments that could surprise us and likewise there's sort of two different ways that technology could appear one is through the kind of fundamental physics that i do new laws of physics new particles and forces and whatever and there i think that it's quite unlikely as i said that we will either get brand new technology or brand new destructive possibilities we figured out the basics we could be surprised you can always be surprised but there's no obvious prospect for devastation coming from that kind of research. The devastation or the new technological goodies will come from putting together the existing particles and forces in interesting ways. Everything from computers to uh, synthetic biology to artificial intelligence, that's all applied versions of the standard model of particle physics. But the possible set of applications is so immensely, enormously huge that just saying, oh, it's just different ways of putting atoms and molecules together is almost no limitation on what it could be. So the kinds of devastating technologies are, you know, really bad viruses or uh, technological things involving artificial intelligence or something on the internet that could wipe us out. So there's all sorts of devastating possibilities for what we can do to ourselves, robots and so forth. Lightsabers. Lightsabers, yeah, maybe something like lightsabers. <laughs> but lightsabers are sort of they're they're a little, aren't they just not that destructive yeah, really? That, like yeah, they're really kind not of, that cool. Yeah, they didn't really help in the in, there's no death stars. So I think that it's not going to be better bombs. It's going to be more subtle ways that technology can make us both better and worse. When you look at the work that you're doing right now, is there something that you, uh, you know, by the end of your life would like to look back and have solved? Well, many things, sadly, and the likelihood of doing all of them is pretty small. But obviously, one very, very big thing is this ongoing project of reconciling gravity and quantum mechanics. So Einstein gave us our best theory of gravity, 
the general theory of relativity in 1915, where he says that not only is there something called space-time, but space-time is curved, it has a geometry, it can move around, it can be affected by matter and energy, and we, uh, we interpret that movement and effect of curved space-time as gravity. That's what gravity is, the curvature of space-time. It's a brilliant idea. And then along comes quantum mechanics, which is an even more brilliant idea. And what we generally do in physics is take a good pre-quantum idea like electricity and magnetism, and we quantize it. We, we put it into the framework of quantum mechanics. And we do that both with electricity and magnetism and also with the nuclear forces, what are called the weak nuclear force and the strong nuclear force. And all this adds up to the standard model of particle physics, which, like I said, every experiment we've ever done fits in with that. Gravity doesn't fit in with that. We don't have a good quantum mechanical theory of gravity. For someone like me, I suspect that, you know, here are two facts. Number one, we don't understand quantum gravity. Number two, we don't understand quantum mechanics at all, right? We don't understand the basic workings of quantum mechanics. I think these two facts are related. Almost no, none of my fellow physicists believe this. They think that they can get away with quantizing gravity using their current feeble, incomplete understanding of quantum mechanics. I think we need to understand quantum mechanics at its most fundamental foundational level, and that will help us understand how gravity fits in. It's so confusing that they don't want to know how it works. It seems... It will actively hurt you. You know, there's things that are called physics, and you'll, you'll find many, many active philosophers of science who got PhDs in theoretical physics, realized that what they wanted to do was to understand quantum mechanics, and got kicked out of the field and became philosophers instead. Hmm. One, one of the things that when you look back at, you know, in Einstein's day, he, there was constant debates between him and other physicists about what was real, what was not. If these theories were correct, people were always trying to one-up each other or one-down yeah. each other. There was the famous quote from Einstein where he, he said, you know, God does not play dice with the universe, to which I forget who the who responded, but said, who are you to say what, what God does with Niels the Bors. universe? Niels stop Bors. telling God what to do. Yeah, stop. <laughs> uh, um, are those kinds of debates going on today? They kind of are. Um, it's always hard like, to Like, are generalize. there Twitter fights between... Uh, cosmologists or... Well, so there's something else that is going on, okay. which is the hyper-specialization of the academy. The fact that if you want to be a famous physicist, talking to the general public is frowned upon in a way that maybe it wasn't 100 years ago. But to be honest, I don't know. I wasn't alive 100 years ago, so maybe it was different. But I think that the high-level debates are going on behind closed doors in some sense. They're not going on out in public. Sometimes they do, you know, in books or in Scientific American or something like that. I mean, recently there was a little incident where some physicists wrote an article in Scientific American saying that inflationary cosmology, this idea of a hyper-accelerated expansion of the early universe that explains what we see today, predicted a multiverse and therefore shouldn't count as science because we can't see the multiverse. And some other physicists wrote back a letter to Scientific American saying, that's outrageous that you would say that. We're good scientists. We're just doing science. And so that was a little episode where a tiny bit of real scientific disagreement peeked into the that public That would make an amazing reality TV show. Exactly. <laughs> scientists, survivor. Um, but yeah, so I think that's part of why some people like me are motivated to help open those doors a little bit, to uh, get out there on Twitter and in books and talk about not only the fun things we've discovered, but the ongoing controversies. You know, I've never been, there's a whole bunch of people who think that when you have a scientific controversy, the thing to do is to first 
finish it <laughs> to figure out what the right answer is, and only then let the general public in on it. And I think that, that does a disservice to the reality of how science gets done. I think that it's perfectly okay to let the public in on the things we haven't yet agreed about. How did you get uh, get into this whole world? Was it Were you interested in this when you were a little kid, or was it something that happened later in life? Or? I was a little kid. I was about roughly 10 years old, because I remember being in uh, fourth grade, and uh, it was just from reading books, you know, reading popular level books. Um, I'm not exactly sure why I started reading popular level books, but I would go to the library, hang out in the 600s or whatever it was in the Dewey Decimal <clears> System <throat> that uh, was had all the books about black holes and quarks and the Big Bang. And did you read a lot of science fiction too? I did, uh, but it was almost unrelated. It wasn't that science fiction got me into science or vice versa. It's just I liked both of them. So when you, to wrap up here, when you, let's just put on your, let's just put on your sci-fi hat for a second. Let's have a little fun here. Sure. Okay. If you could imagine the universe or the world we live in, let's just go through like a, a, a dis- distances in time and you can kind of give us some cool things that you think may exist from the discovery of what quantum mechanics is or right. whatever it is um, uh, 50 years from now. Yeah, um, providing providing we don't kill ourselves, but that can be that can be within your answers if you like. Making predictions is always hard, especially yeah. <laughs> about the future. Uh, Fifty years is about right because uh, I might not be around anymore. You okay, know? so that's that seems safe. Maybe the podcast technology will no longer be around anyway. Um, so I think that in fifty years we'll probably have discovered what the dark matter is. Um, I think we'll have a much better idea than we do right now what happened in the vicinity of the Big Bang, like what happened immediately thereafter. I, I'm not sure, but I'm hopeful that we'll know whether the Big Bang was really the beginning of the universe. Uh, we don't know that right now. Maybe it was, or maybe there was a universe before the Big Bang. And, the, and what, that theory is that the universe existed and contracted, and then there was a Big Bang and it, it happened be, again? Or That's one theory. It could be bounce. That's what that would be called. What is it? A bounce. So the universe, uh, in this view, would have contracted. And then rather than just crunching and ending, something would make it go boing. And then it bounces into what we see as the Big Bang in our past. Um, Or there was just a big universe that was sort of big and quiet and always existed and occasionally flared up into universes like ours. Uh, There's many different possibilities, many different ways that uh, the Big Bang could not be the beginning. And I think that we're close enough, and quantum gravity has a lot to do with this, but we're learning enough about how quantum mechanics works and how it plays well with space-time that I can be more optimistic than I would have been 20 years ago that we'll figure out what quantum gravity is and what happened at the Big Bang within the next 50 years. Um, should we go to 100 years or 500? What do you want to do? Well, in my field, that's almost impossible. But we can talk <laughs> about technology, right? Like, yeah. I, I, I'm a big believer. I have aspirations someday to write a book um, about technology in the future because obviously everyone cares about artificial intelligence yeah. and um, you know, biological engineering and things like that. And there, I think there are two things that I personally think are underemphasized here. One is the fact that we think about the world by drawing a sharp line between living beings and machines. I think that the single most important medium-term thing is that that boundary is going to become increasingly blurry. I think that, you know, we imagine artificial intelligence. We imagine, you know, talking through a computer terminal to Siri or something like that. But we know from work that has been done that if you want to make a, a, a program seem intelligent, give it a body. Put in a robot, let it respond to its environment. 
And I think that the other way works too. I think that human beings are going to be connected more directly with the internet and with computers. Uh, cyborgs you're talking about here? or Cyborgs, but, you know, <clears throat> cyborgs make it seem like uh, a little bit more mechanical. I mean that our brains are going to be just plugged right in the internet so that you will have immediate access to everything that you can Google. And rather than sitting down and Googling it, it'll just be there. It'll be like calling up a memory. Remember what you had for dinner last night? Remember what the population of Moldavia is? Those will be equally easy things to do, right? We'll have ways of talking to people around the world, you know, sort of super virtual FaceTime that, you know, will cost nothing, will be instantaneous. Uh, computational power, calculating the tip will never be hard again, right? You know, <laughs> And going beyond that, doing simulations of complicated things because we'll be hooked into this amazing uh, computational power. Memory will be enormously different because you'll have more or less a recording of everything you experience in your life, right? This is not that hard to imagine on a 50 or 100 year time scale and that will affect very deeply how we behave as human beings. Is there, if you had to pick one thing that you're most excited about and one thing you're most terrified about, what would it be? You know, narrowly speaking, I am uh, most excited about understanding quantum mechanics and space-time. That's what I'm doing for yep. a living. Um, there's a whole other set of research interests I have about complexity and um, entropy and how those relate to each other, which is also very exciting. But um, yeah, I think that I'm pretty conventional in terms of um, what I just said, uh, the, the blurriness of the biotech <clears throat> boundary yep. and curing aging and artificial intelligence and things like that, you know, how can you help but be excited about that? In terms of being fearful, you can also be fearful about these things, but I think that they're technologies. I think we should control them like we, we should worry about AI and um, synthetic biology and things like that and bioengineering in exactly the same way we worry about air travel, right, or <laughs> nuclear power. You know, we should regulate it and be careful about it, but use it for good purposes. You know, I think that the political situation we're in right now, not just with Donald Trump, but with... Uh, we finally said the name. I know, we had to get there. <laughs> well, you know, you said that that's yeah, what gets yeah, us uh, yeah. listens, so I'm, I'm just, you know, yeah. pandering. Um, but it's not just Donald Trump. It's not even Donald Trump. It is... Uh, in some sense, the instability of liberal democracy is a way of governing ourselves. That's what we're seeing. Like yeah. We're seeing cracks in the, in the armor there that uh, may be signs of the beginning of the end of democracy as a way that we choose to rule ourselves. I don't know, but look, if it's only a 2% chance that we're in the midst of possibly seeing the end of democracy, I would think that'd be hugely worth worrying about because yeah. you know, I don't want to live under an autocracy or an oligarchy. And we want to live. We don't want to die under do. some sort it's of also that. nuclear explosion. Uh, this has been uh, truly fascinating, has given me more to think about than uh, when you showed up here, when I was already thinking about all this stuff. Um, thank you so much. Where can everyone find you and follow your work and whatnot? So I'm on Twitter at Sean M. Carroll, S-E-A-N-M. Carroll, with two R's and two L's. I also have a website at preposterousuniverse.com that has a blog and a whole bunch of links. And he has uh, fascinating books, uh, The Big Picture, the audiobook you narrate. Narrated that myself. It was a long book. It was a lot of words. <clears throat> I, I, I'm impressed that you did it. It's, when we first met, I was like, why do I know this guy's this voice? voice? Yes. And now, <laughs> and now I realize. Uh, Sean, it's been amazing. Thank you so much. Thanks, Nick. Thanks to my guest today. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a nice review while you're there. 
Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work, my editors at Vanity Fair, and thank you for listening. I will see you all next week.